Welcome to the Lighthouse Community Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope today's teaching will encourage you in your faith and help you develop an increasing desire to walk with God. Let's listen in. All right. Well, hey, welcome. It is Lighthouse University Sunday. I'm so excited. I was able to get the wet zone splash zone going with my coffee over here. So, uh, yeah. But we're doing something a little bit different. We do this once or twice a year where we do a deep theological dive into a topic on the scriptures. And so to start off this morning, I have a riddle for you. When does one plus one plus one equal one? And the answer is the Trinity. That's, that's when that works. It's a mathematical way to talk about the Trinity. And the Trinity, in fact, actually might be one of the most avoided doctrines today because people struggle to understand it. And so they just stay away from it. They don't really dive into it. Uh, I would also say this, the Trinity is also one of the most critical doctrines today. Right? It's so important to grasp and to understand. You may not know this, but the word Trinity is never actually even used in the Bible. You won't, you won't find that in the scriptures. Uh, also, while the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly throughout scripture, you will not find a chapter and verse that explicitly teaches through what the Trinity is, what it isn't. You know, you can't find that paragraph where Jesus does a teaching or a dialogue regarding the Trinity. So what we have to do is we actually have to do what's called systematic theology. And so rather than finding one verse or a couple of verses that are all together and then expanding on those, you actually have to look at what does all of the Bible have to say about this topic of the Trinity. And so you're looking at dozens, sometimes even hundreds of verses throughout the scripture to build an understanding of what all the Bible has to say. And while you're reading it, while you're thinking about it, you ask the Holy Spirit to give you clarity of understanding to, to say what the scriptures say without going much further than that. And so for us today, we're going to be just scratching the surface of systematic theology on the Trinity because we can't say everything there is to say about the Trinity. The reality is that nobody can say everything there is to say about the Trinity because it's this amazingly wonderful and mysterious doctrine of the church that's actually at the center of Christianity. It's very similar to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that if you don't have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity falls apart very quickly. And in the same breath, if you don't have a clear understanding of what the Bible says about the Trinity, Christianity simply falls apart. So today what we're going to do is we're going to define what the Trinity is, we're going to talk about where we see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then we'll cross into what does that mean for you and I today. And so it is Lighthouse University, and in university fashion, uh, I am your professor, the FL, what did Matt call me this morning, the right reverend, uh, FL James Belo. So glad to be with you today. Here we go. And Okay. I couldn't find my bubble solution. Uh, I tried to find it, and I couldn't find it. So, uh, yeah, every now and again, I'll be referring to I make a really good point. So, yeah, if the, if the uh, what's this called, a pipe? If the pipe goes up, if the pipe goes up, I need the men to say, yeah, brother, uh, <laughs> and the women to say, that's right. Uh, so, let's try that real quick. Oh, hey, hey all right, yeah, okay. <laughs> 
Hey, um, if, I want to welcome everybody. If this is your first time with us, this isn't normal. Um, <laughs> but I'm really glad you're here. Uh, and I do want to welcome uh, Bluffton Community, Fostoria, any of our friends from Living Hope. Uh, everybody here today, thanks for being with us. Before we dive into this really important topic on the Trinity, I do want to take a moment and pray together. Let's do that. Father God, we recognize that we are getting ready to dive into clear truth of what the scriptures say about you. And we want to have clear understanding about what you have to say about yourself. Um, not, we, we want to push away from faulty assumptions that we're pulling from somewhere else. Um, we want to not say what the scripture doesn't say and go further and make assumptions uh, based on, on what we might think. But we really just want to dive into truth. And, and I know today will be different for a lot of people. And yet today will be good. And I wonder if you would lead us thoughtfully to understand you with greater clarity because, Lord, I am just convinced that the, the more we understand who you are as you have revealed yourself through the, through the scriptures, you use that to transform our lives and lead us into greater faith and greater usefulness in your kingdom today. And so we're, we're relying on the Spirit to do what only he can do, which is to lead us into truth. We love you, we worship you, and we ask all these things through the great name of Jesus, and everyone said, amen. Okay, so what we're going to start with is we're going to start with just a quick definition of what is the Trinity, because I think it's very important to define that with clarity so that we begin to look at Scripture with that understanding. There are three primary statements uh, regarding the Trinity. Uh, the first one would be this, is that there is one God. There's one God, and really that comes out of Exodus chapter 20 when uh, God gives the nation of Israel the Ten Commandments, and the very first one is, I'm God alone. You'll have no other gods before me, right? I'm a very jealous God. The very second commandment is no idols, right? You're not even going to worship things that are made that you think you're going to attribute uh, deity to. And so the, the understanding of Scripture is there is one God. There's not multiple gods. There's one. And so when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about the fact that there is one God. Now, the second statement that we have to bring out about the Trinity is there is one God, and that one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And a lot of people will go, well, that's a contradiction. How can you have a one God and three persons? And they'll say that's a contradiction. In fact, that's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be God is three and God is not three. That's a contradiction. When we say that God is one and that God is three persons, it's not a contradiction. What it is, is it's a mystery. That's what it is. It's not, it's not illogical to say that God is one and that he's three persons. It's, it's actually, it, it reveals how amazingly wonderful and massive God really is beyond our ability to contain him. And so you've got God is one God, he is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here's the third part of the statement when we're defining the Trinity. It's this, is that each person is fully God. And so it's not like the Father is 80% God and Jesus is 15 and then, you know, the Holy Spirit is five or somewhere in there, uh, but actually each person is fully God. And so what is true about God in general is true about the Father, it's true about the Son, it's true about the Holy Spirit. One thing that I think can be helpful, uh, there's, there's a diagram uh, that one theologian put out. We'll put it up here on the screen for you to look at. But I think this is helpful to understand that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And so each person is fully God. But 
The Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. These are three distinct persons, each who are God, and yet, right, they're, they're different from one another in the roles that they play and who they are. And so maybe that helps to understand a little bit visually of what we're talking about when we're referring to the Trinity. But whenever we're talking about the Trinity, you have to start with those three statements, that there is one God, that this one God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. Those are very, very important to understand. Yeah, okay, there we go, yeah, okay. <laughs> I like this thing. Um, Okay. Now, when you're looking throughout the scriptures, you'll begin to, if you start in the Old Testament, again, you're not going to find a passage that says, this is what the Trinity is. And, and let me explain it for you. But what you see in the Old Testament is you see foreshadowing of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And so if you start in Genesis chapter 1, and you look at verses 26 and 27, uh, after God has uh, already created the heavens and the earth, he's created right water and land and sky and all of these things, and now he's creating humanity. And you look at verse 26, Genesis chapter 1, and it says this, Then God said... Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so we begin to see this plurality within the scriptures when God is referring to himself. You also see that again in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8, where uh, again, this is God speaking, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us, right? And so there's this plurality of God speaking. What's interesting about Genesis 1 and Isaiah chapter 6 is there's this dance between the singular and the plural, Right In Genesis chapter 1, it says, And God said, singular, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so you have singular and plural in the same verse. The same thing happens in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. God said, Whom will I send and who will go for us? And so there's these foreshadowings in the Old Testament regarding the Trinity. It's not fully revealed about the Trinity, but there are hints regarding the Trinity. That's important to understand. Now, when you jump over and you look at the New Testament, what we begin to see there is it's no longer foreshadowing, it's no longer hints, but it's what I would call revelation. That there is a revealing, a clear revealing of the Trinity in the New Testament. And it begins right from the outset of the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 3. And so why don't you jump over there and take a look at that. Uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 16. This is a really important uh, passage, not only uh, describing who Jesus is in the beginning of his ministry, but also we see the Trinity clearly uh, present in this moment. So starting in verse 16, uh, this is after Jesus uh, has come to John the baptizer, and he's been baptized. When he comes up out of the water, this is what happens. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were 
opened to him. A better rendering would be were ripped open before him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so in just two passages, you see the Son, you see the Spirit of God, and you hear the voice of the Father speaking regarding the Son in this moment. And so the Trinity is showing up right at the beginning. By the way, Mark records this moment, and Luke records this moment as well. And some of you might be going, what about John? John has even more to say uh, about the Trinity. But the first three Gospels all expose this moment. That's the beginning of Matthew. Now, if you jump to the end of Matthew and you look at the last chapter, Matthew 28, this is after Jesus has been killed on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. Uh, He's been uh, with his disciples now, appearing to them, resurrected. And then you get to Matthew 28, Verses 18, 19, and 20. We're just going to zone in on 19 for a second. But there's a command here where it talks about that new disciples will be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It just simply says this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so just as in the Old Testament, Genesis and Isaiah, there's jump back and forth between singular and plural. Baptize them in the name, singular, of the plural, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so again, you begin to see the Trinity really clearly uh, in baptism here for new disciples. If you look at Acts chapter 10, uh, verses 36 through 38, you begin to see very clearly the role of each person involved in ministry. It says this, As for the word he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so you see that the proclaiming of the gospel through earthly ministry, we see Jesus We see the role of the Father. We see the role of the Holy Spirit as well. I I, want to show you these because you need to know that when we're looking at Scripture, you actually don't have to look very hard to see the Trinity present again and again and again. And so uh, you see uh, Paul when he's writing his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter uh, to them, in chapter 13, and you look at verse 14, it says this. This is how he closes his letter. Actually, let's do this. We haven't read a passage out loud together yet. Let's read this one out loud together, beginning with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Go. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And so what's happening here is you have parallel phrases regarding each person of the Trinity, right? You wouldn't do that unless they were co-equal in standing, right? You would put the Holy Spirit off to the side somewhere else. You wouldn't put them in the same sentence as the Lord Jesus Christ and God, right? If Jesus was less than, you wouldn't do the same thing. But you see Paul clearly doing that. He's ending one of his letters to the Corinthians with this closing. And you might go, wow, that's, that's Paul. You know, Paul got a little crazy and, and you know, thinking about stuff like that. Well, uh, the Apostle Peter is right there as well. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, this is where he starts his letter. He says this, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So again, you have parallel statements about each person of the Trinity right here, right? And there's agreement that these, these are equal. They're not, they're not less than. These are co-equal persons regarding who God is. And so you begin to see very clearly that the New Testament is revealing what the Old Testament was foreshadowing. What I want to dive into just very quickly is the reality that each person is God, and the New Testament carries that very, very clearly. And so, again, if we're back, like Pastor Matt mentioned, we're going to be all over the passages today. Some of you guys who grew up doing sword drills, you're like, I've been waiting my whole life for this moment since fifth grade. Uh, Others of you, you better pull your phone out, and uh, you'll be able to get there a little bit quicker. But John chapter 13, verse 3, is talking about that the Father is God. It says this, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and then check this out, parallel statement, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. And so Father and God are interchanged because this is the same person, right? Um, That's really important. So we see that the Father is God. If you jump over uh, to Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, some of you guys actually have this passage memorized, great section of scripture to remember and simply meditate on. But if you wonder, you go, well, how could we know that Jesus is God? Uh, Paul uses what we believe is probably a hymn from the early church uh, that everybody would know and would have understood uh, in the church. But he says this, starting in verse 6, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so why would he count equality with God if he wasn't, right? So he didn't latch on to that. He could have, but he didn't. Look at, you look at verse 7. But instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And so, again, he's bringing himself into human form is what this is talking about because Jesus, the Son, is God, right? Paul is talking about that. If you jump one letter over to Colossians chapter 1, verse 19, it says this. Paul makes it very, very clear, talking about Christ. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell that's right, brother. Yeah. Okay, there we go. <laughs> we have to get use this a little bit more. But yeah, right? I want you to notice it's the fullness, not the mostness, not the someness, not the 13%ness. It's the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. You go just a couple verses over in chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says this again, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Uh, We just came out of a series in Hebrews, and Hebrews starts out saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is the radiance of God's glory. And so again, you see just the, the witness of Scripture is that Jesus is God. If you want to cross over, because some people might go, well, okay, other people view Jesus as God, but Jesus never really believed that about himself. 
Well, you know, if we picked up that question, it means that he did. And so let's go look at that in John chapter 10, verses 30 through 31, right? Uh, This is happening, a very short statement. It says this, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. It says this, I and the Father are... And so some might go, well... He's just saying that, that they're in unity, they're on the same mission, they're like-minded. But even if that were true, look at how people respond when Jesus makes this statement in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And the reason why is you look down a little bit further in verse 33, it says, well, the reason we're doing this is because you're a man and you're making yourself equal with God. We know what you're saying. I and the Father are one. And so they wanted to kill him for it. And so Jesus clearly understood himself as God. And then you had others, right? There's testimony that people would ask Jesus questions. And if there was ever a moment to correct somebody and go, whoa, 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 you've taken it too far, this would have been it, right? You look at like Matthew chapter 26, verses 63 through 65, when Jesus is standing before the Sanhedrin. These are the guys who are going to decide whether they're going to send him to Pilate to be killed or not. And in verse 63, it says, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And if ever there's a moment for Jesus to go, whoa, whoa, my disciples have taken it way too far. Let's stop this thing. It's not true. This is the moment. Look at what he says in verse 64. You have said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And again, the high priest knew what he was saying because he ripped his clothes, right? And he says, that's it. He's uttered blasphemy. We don't need to hear anything else. And so Jesus never corrected these people. When Thomas, he does see the resurrected Jesus in John chapter 20, he says to Jesus' face, my Lord and my God. Jesus never corrected him. He received that praise and that worship. And then another big apologetic for how we can know that Jesus is God, you have John, who is an apostle chosen by Jesus, He's a Jew, by the way. And then you have Paul, who was trained in the strictest of Judaism, right? He's a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, all of these types of things. And if there's one thing that Jews do better than anything else, is they don't worship people. They only worship God. Now, they might worship the wrong God at times in the Old Testament, but they never worship people. And when you look at the writings of Paul, he makes such strong arguments that Jesus Christ is God himself in the flesh. John starts out his letter, or excuse me, his gospel, saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. And so the Word, what he's talking about, he's talking about Jesus is the Word. And so you have Jews who don't, you don't worship people ever. You don't worship flesh. You worship God alone. And here they are. Again, you can look at Matthew chapter 28. You see at the end of that, Jesus on this mountain, it says some worshiped, some doubted. It's right there in Matthew 28. You have Jews worshiping this Jesus because he is God. 
So you have to see clearly that Jesus understood himself as God. But also the Holy Spirit is God. And I think probably the most uh, powerful verse around that is actually found in Acts chapter 5, verse 3 and 4. Let me set the tone for you. The church is just beginning. People are beginning to sell their goods, give them to the church for furthering the gospel. So you have one guy named uh, Barnabas who does this uh, well with genuineness. And then you get to this other crew, Ananias and Sapphira. Um, let's just say they held back some of the money for themselves, but tried to make it seem like they gave everything. You can read the rest of the story, see how it goes for them. Uh, but here's the important thing for us, starting in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? That's an important phrase. Remember that, to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. He says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit you've lied to God. He uses those interchangeably. And so clearly, the early church understood the Holy Spirit being God. There's other passages. I would encourage you to check out Romans chapter 8. You'll see clearly that they understood that the Holy Spirit is God. And probably the most clear, if you're reading it with thoughtfulness, is John the Gospel of John, chapters 14 through 17. I, we're not going to go through it today, but I would encourage you in your own time, read through that passage because what you see is Jesus is constantly talking to his disciples about his disciples. He's praying for them, and he says things like, the Holy Spirit's going to come to you, and he's going to be within you, and also I'm going to come, and I'm going to be with you, and the Father's in me, and I'm in the Father, and we're going to come, and we're going to make our home with you, and we're going to dwell in you. And so at some point, you get to the end of chapter 17, you're like, well, who's living in me? Is it the Spirit? Is it Jesus, or is it the Father? And it's like, yes, right? (laughs) There's like, there is a lot of room, right, in here, Um, but it's like, you know, sometimes we have these really clear delineated lines to have nice, crisp, tight theology when even the scripture doesn't keep it that tight, right? And so who is it that's indwelling me? Is it the Holy Spirit? Yes. Is it Jesus Christ? Yes. Is it the Father? Yes. God is dwelling within me through faith in Christ, right? And so each per- you begin to understand how there's one God. God is three persons, and each person is fully God. But this is so clearly, clearly revealed in the New Testament. When you get past the New Testament, what I think is very helpful after that um, is you have what I would call clarity and expression that comes from the church after the time of the New Testament. You don't have the church saying anything new, but rather what they're doing is they're clarifying and they're expressing. And so for the first 200 years, you just simply see that Trinitarian thought was just accepted. It was just understood as being true, but you didn't have a lot of development around that doctrine for the first couple hundred years. There's a few reasons for that. Number one, they're so focused on sharing the gospel They're so focused on just kind of organizing this thing. But then at the same time, you know what else they're dealing with? Persecution. They're just trying to survive. 
uh, for the first couple hundred years. And then it's the early 300s where things really have a shift in that moment, right? Christianity becomes the official religion of the uh, Roman Empire. And so now you don't have them running for their lives. They actually can share the gospel anywhere, everywhere that they absolutely want to. And so it's this time that persecution wanes and you have now an increase in thought and development around some key doctrines like the Trinity. We're not going to go through all these, but I just want to draw your attention to things like the Nicene Creed in 325 AD. One of the things that I think is so clear out of this is the Nicene Creed affirms that there's one God, affirms that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of the things that they say clearly about the Son is that he is God of God. He's very much God. The Holy Spirit is very much God, right? That's, that's becoming clear in 325 AD. Also says that the Holy Spirit is adored and glorified with the Son and the Father. You get to about 381 AD and you have the Council of Constantinople, which is another very definitive statement about the Trinity. You fast forward about 150 years and you get to what's known as the Athanasian Creed, uh, which are just really, really clear descriptions about the Trinity and especially about the dual nature of Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, right? And so you begin to see just clarity of the development of thought as this is going on because there's time to think about it. Now what's happened in the problem, the reason they had to do this is because people are looking at scripture and they're going, wait a second, maybe this is true about the Trinity, maybe this is true about the Trinity, or you have somebody like pick up a clover off the ground and go, hey, God's like this clover, right? Three leaves, but it's one clover. And people would start to think about that analogy and go, I don't think that really works that well, you know? Somebody else one day was like, I've got it. It's, it's water, right? It's, it's, it's all about water. And then if you use water, you can describe the Trinity of that. And people go, I don't think that one works either, right? And so they're struggling to describe what the Trinity is. And so you see this, this historically. So what we've done is we've, uh, we've found and captured a documentary uh, of a, a discussion from a long time ago about some people wrestling through the doctrine of the Trinity. And so I want you to take a quick look at this, if you would. Okay, Patrick, tell us a bit more about this Trinity thing. Yeah, Patrick, tell us. But remember that we're simple people without your fancy education and books and learning, and we're hearing about all of this for the first time. So try to keep it simple, okay, Patrick? Yeah, real simple, Patrick. Sure, there are uh, three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet there is only one God. Don't get what you're saying here, Patrick. Not picking up what you're laying down here, Patrick. Could you use an analogy, Patrick? Sure. Uh, the Trinity is like uh, water and how you can find water in three different forms. Liquid and ice and vapor. That's modalism, Patrick! What? Modalism, an ancient heresy confessed by teachers such as Noetus and Sibelius, which espouses that God is not three distinct persons, but that he merely reveals himself in three different forms. This heresy was clearly condemned in Canon 1 at the First Council of Constantinople in 381 AD, and those who confess it cannot rightly be considered a part of the Church Catholic. Come on, Patrick! Yeah, get it together, Patrick! Uh, okay, uh, then the Trinity is like uh, the sun in the sky, where you have the star and the light, and the heat. Oh, Patrick. Come on, Patrick. That's Arianism, Patrick. 
Arianism? Yes, Arianism, Patrick. A theology which states that Christ and the Holy Spirit are creations of the Father and not one in nature with him. Exactly like how heat and light are not the star itself, but are merely creations of the star. That's a bad analogy, Patrick. You're the worst, Patrick. All right, sorry. The Trinity is like uh, this three-leaf clover here. I'm going to stop you right there, Patrick. Yeah, hold your horses, Patrick. You're about to confess partialism. Partialism? Yes, partialism. A heresy which asserts that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons of the Godhead, but are different parts of God, each composing one-third of the divine. And who confesses the heresy of partialism? The first season of the cartoon program Voltron, where five robot lion cars merge together to form one giant robot samurai, obviously... I've never heard of Voltron. Of course you haven't. It's not going to exist for another 1,500 years now, Patrick. Yeah, get with the program, Patrick. I mean, really, Patrick. I'm going to stab you in the face, Patrick. Okay, that was probably a bit much. All right, I'll try again. Uh, the Trinity is like how the same man can be a husband and a father and an employer. Modalism again. All right, then it's like the three layers of an apple. Partialism revisited. Fine. The Trinity is a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, but is understood only through faith and is best confessed in the words of the Athanasian Creed, which states that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance, that we are compelled by the Christian truth to confess that each distinct person is God and Lord, and that the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, equal in glory, co-equal in majesty. Well, why didn't you just say that, Patrick? Yeah, quit beating around the bush. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, whatever clever analogy you think you've come up <laughs> to describe the Trinity, uh, there you go. Uh, they, they all just fall short. And so you just have to go back to the definition from the beginning. There is one God, he's three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God. Now, uh, what I want to just quickly talk about before we cross into implications for us is that the Trinity is clearly involved in both creation and involved in salvation. And so we see that the Trinity was involved in creation. Uh, if we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, uh, you see clearly right in the opening passages of the Bible, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so again, right from the beginning, we see God, we see the spirit of God involved in creation. Uh, if you go to the New Testament passages of Colossians chapter one, uh, verses 16 and 17, uh, Paul makes very, very clear statements about what Jesus was doing during this time, because you, you only see God in the spirit in Genesis, but Paul writes this in verse 16 of Colossians one, for, talking about Jesus, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so clearly exposing what Christ was doing in the time of creation. Uh, and then again, if you look at the verses right around it, verse 15 and 17 right there, that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 17 says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And so we see that Jesus is clearly present before the creation of the world. And in fact, all of creation was created by him. It was created through him. It was created 
for him. Uh, one of the things that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 when he's praying to the Father is he said, I long for my disciples to see the glory I shared with you before the foundation of the world. So again, you see Jesus in this intimate moment looking forward to being with the Father and the Spirit uh, in heaven again. It, that's, that's creation. When you look at salvation, Again, I think you stay in the Gospel of John to, to think about some of these types of things. Uh, but in John chapter 3, you see John the baptizer is talking uh, about Jesus. This is after John 3.16. Most people have at least heard that verse before. Um, but these are a few passages afterwards. John the baptizer said this in verse 33 and 34. He said, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And so when we're looking at the gospel, we see that it's the Father who sends the Son, it's the Son who's speaking with clarity, and it's the Holy Spirit who's leading us into truth. Um, in First John, so again, uh, I, wanted, I just want to make this clear, you have a Jewish person clearly clearly worshiping Christ uh, as God. So this is not just a person. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, uh, John writes this, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so what he's saying is, is that Jesus paid the debt that you and I owed. He lived the life we should have lived, but we didn't. And he died the death we deserve to die for our sin in our place. And again, uh, it's not only the Father, it's not only the Son, but you also see the Holy Spirit involved in the work of salvation. Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 38 says this clearly. By the way, this is one of the first preaching messages uh, right after the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples. Peter's preaching this, and he says this in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that salvation and the Holy Spirit are tightly linked. So Christ has done the work. The Holy Spirit then becomes the affirmation, the confirmation that we really do belong to Christ. Romans 8 talks about that. Ephesians chapter 1 talks about that. That in fact, Paul makes it so clear. He says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you don't belong to Christ. Ephesians 1 says that, that the Holy Spirit is the down payment, right? That you do belong to him. So he's, he's the centerpiece to all of this. So you have to see it's not just the Father involved in salvation. Not, we, tend to, we tend to only look at Jesus, that Jesus died, Jesus rose, and that's the essence of salvation. But you have to see it was the Father who sent him. It's the Holy Spirit who is empowering. It's the Holy Spirit who fills us now uh, and uh, empowers us for holy living and transformation as well. Okay, so we just covered a ton of truth in a short amount of time. And what I want to cross into just very quickly is what does this mean for us today? I think there's three things. I can't unpack them fully, but I want to get you thinking about them. There's three implications for us today. The first one is this. Christianity cannot be understood outside of the Trinity. Christianity cannot be understood outside of the Trinity. You have to understand that Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is God, right? They're not lesser than, they're co-equal. These are co-equal people in the person of God, right? And so, because the problem is, if Jesus isn't God, if the Holy Spirit isn't God, there becomes all kinds of problems that begin to develop. If Jesus is not God, what that means is that we do not have a perfect sacrifice 
who has satisfied the payment of sin. If Jesus is not God, we don't have a perfect sacrifice who satisfied the payment of sin. And if Jesus is not God, then we don't have a mediator who stands in the gap, who can totally represent the holiness of God and who can totally understand the weakness and the failure of man. Jesus is the only one who can do that because he is fully God and he is fully man. No one else can serve in that mediating role other than the unique person of Jesus Christ who is God in every sense of the word. And if Jesus isn't God, what that means... We don't have a sacrifice and we don't have a mediator and you and I are still dead in our sin. And there's no hope. That's what that means. And if the Holy Spirit isn't God, then that means we're actually, we might be legally declared uh, right, but we're still separated from God because he's not within us. And our hearts remain untransformed because it's the Holy Spirit who does a transforming work and it's the Spirit of God who reveals the thoughts of God's, God to us and leads us into truth. And so we will continue to struggle to understand God and his ways if the Holy Spirit isn't God. This is why it's so critical that God is one. He's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God. Because that's true, we do have freedom from our sins. We are being transformed day to day, moment by moment, through the power of God living within us. That's the first one. Christianity cannot be understood outside of the Trinity. Here's the second implication, that it's through the Trinity we, be, we begin to see, or excuse me, we understand what true relationships with others look like. Through the Trinity, we understand what true relationship with others look like. Because you have to see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been in perfect relationship for all of eternity. This is so important because you need to know God did not create you because he was bored or he needed someone to love or someone to love him. He had all that through the Son, the Spirit, and the Father. Think about that. Perfect relationship for all of eternity, and he created us. And then everything that comes on the back end of that. And we also begin to see that true relationship is not marked by power structures, Who's in charge? Who's not in charge? You know, uh, who's going to be able to do what they want to do and not? But you begin to see that true relationship is marked by purpose, marked by unity, and marked by humility. Because we see that the Son, who is fully God in every sense of the word, willfully submitted himself to the will of the Father for our salvation. Right? Jesus said time and time again, the Son only says that which the Father tells him to say. The Son only does that which the Father uh, shows him to do right? Uh, I've only come to do the will of my Father. And so you have this co-equal person in the Trinity willfully submitting himself in humility for the purposes of God. And you see that the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son only speaking what he hears, only revealing what he's told to reveal, right? All of these things are true. And so we begin to see that the nature of relationships isn't about power struggle. Who's going to get what they want? Who's going to be the one making the decisions? Who's going to be in charge? Who's the real head of the household? Right? All of that kind of stuff, all that begins to go away when you look at the Trinity and you begin to see there's one true head of the household and it ain't me. It's Jesus Christ, right? And so I'm willfully choosing to submit myself to the leadership of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Here's the last implication, that through the Trinity, we begin to see how magnificent God truly is. And I chose that language intentionally. We begin we begin to see how magnificent God 
truly is. Because God's love for us becomes profoundly clear through Christ's death and resurrection. Go back to relationship implication. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in perfect relationship for all of eternity. And I want you to understand this to the best that you can. I still struggle to wrap my mind around it as well. I want you to think about this. That the Son left heaven, wrapped himself in flesh, came and lived with the limitations and the weaknesses that come with that, submitted himself even unto human leadership, being, killed, being tortured, being humiliated, being killed. And that's not even the worst part. The worst part that Jesus dealt with, and I actually think this is what he was praying about in Gethsemane, and I think this is what brought him to the point of uh, droplets of blood coming out of his sweat, is he realized that the son was about to face separation from the father. That on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you I think that's what brought Jesus the most angst leading up to that moment. That Jesus knows what it is to have the Father look away from him and to suffer that. And I think when you meditate on that, you begin to see how magnificent the love of God truly is. And that through Christ, he suffered separation in your place so that you can enjoy the blessing of adoption and sonship that he has enjoyed, right? He's enjoyed that relationship with the Father for all of eternity because he is God. And, and I think what that does is it begins to draw us to, to see how amazingly huge God is and how awesome he is. One God, three persons, each fully God. I don't even grasp that. I can't understand that. But isn't that the kind of God you want to worship and you want to serve? You really want to worship a God that you think you have all the handles and controls and you, right, you have the limits on him pinned down, right? Like if you can figure out everything about God, what does that say about God? But I would also say this, what does that say about you? I'd say that's even, that's equally an important question. This is one of the reasons I really appreciate Wolf Hart Pannenberg, he's a theologian. Uh, he wrote this one line, wrote many lines, but this is one that sticks out to me. He says this, the one God is three, and there is no God but the Father, Son, and Spirit. That that's, that's how we come to him. That's how we understand him in his fullness and his complexity. And so what, what I would invite all of us to do is to make a decision today, and the decision would simply be this, to choose to decide to learn what the Bible has to say, how God has revealed himself in the Trinity. To just make that choice. I'm, I'm going to commit myself to discovering what does the Bible have to say about who God is in revealing himself through the Trinity. Uh, actually, so this week, as I was uh, taking some time to study, I found this really helpful resource I think you might be interested in. It's an online walkthrough uh, of some very thoughtful people helping us to understand the Trinity from the Scripture. And so if you'd like to receive that resource, just on the back of your connection card, or if you're joining us online, on that online connection card, just mark the box that says, uh, send me the, I think it's called the Learn More About the Trinity uh, 
uh, resource. And uh, Tuesday, uh, not tomorrow, but on Tuesday, if, as long as your email is on the connection card or online, I will email you that resource. And so then you can take the next steps in learning more about the Trinity. But, but I appreciate, there, there's a, a quote, uh, nobody knows who to attribute it to. But talking about the Trinity, it says this, try to explain the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. But try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. This is how critical the Trinity is to understanding who we are as Christ followers and what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. I mean, think about this. As you think about the Trinity, it should lead me to worship to just stand before him in awe and to know he's so much greater, so much more wonderful than I am and that he, he would invite me into his perfect relationship. Do you understand that? That by faith in Christ, I am now a part of the relationship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I am welcomed into that. Not only am I welcomed into that, that God himself takes up residency within me. And so there's this level of just worshiping God in his greatness. I would invite you to do that. So I'm going to ask you if you'll bow your heads and close your eyes and ask. We usually ask Jesus, but you can ask the Father. You can ask the Son. You can ask the Holy Spirit. What are you saying to me right now? And I just want you to listen to him for a moment. this amazing God of ours that draws us close to him by faith through Christ. And that makes all the difference through the things that we face and the things that we wrestle with. As we move into a time of prayer, um, I want to I let this family know about a situation um, that's going on in one of our other families, uh, actually our Bluffton community family. Um, you may or may not know a family by the name of Marty and Christy Cotter. Um, they have six children from 23 all the way down to two. Um, they've been a part of Bluffton community for uh, over a year. Their members there serve in multiple capacities. Um, just, uh, you know, solid family pursuing the Lord. Monday, uh, they got news that their two-year-old son, Clark, uh, simply didn't wake up. And they are clearly crushed and devastated by that. And I share that with you to ask you to pray for them, to pray for the Cotters, to pray for Marty and Christy and the five girls as they're walking through this moment because they have all kinds of questions. They're wondering, what, what happened? What does this mean? What is, you know, all of these things. And and I think what they need right now is they need the presence of the Father. They need the presence of the Son. They need the presence of the Holy Spirit. And they need the presence of their church family to say, we don't understand it. We don't even necessarily have words to be able to share with you right now. But we want you to know, as the scriptures say, we mourn with those who mourn. And we hurt with you as you hurt. And like we talked about last week, there's going to be a time 
where God is going to use you to help them fix their gaze on Christ through their suffering and in the midst of their suffering. And so what I want to invite this family to do right now is to pray for them and to pray on behalf of the Cotters. And, and we know the Cotters aren't the only ones going through things. There, there are people in this church family, people in our region who are facing things. And quite frankly, it is the gospel alone that will walk people through the most difficult seasons of their lives. And so let's turn to the God of hope, Christ of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit of power. God, we're coming to you on behalf of the Cotters and on behalf of Bluffton community and our hearts go out to them. And, and we recognize that this is not a time for, for like positive vibes and, and, and warm feelings, but rather this is a time for the church to do work in the spiritual realms to pray because we know pray causes many wonderful and amazing things to take place. Prayer transforms people. This is a time for the presence of God to show up like never before. This is a time for the church to lead with shepherding and care and not necessarily with theology out front, but with clear theology leading the way in, in, care, in caring and shepherding and pointing people to hope in the gospel. And so we pray for Marty and we pray for Christy and their family. They're working through all the details of that. And Lord, I pray for those who, as, as they're hearing this news, they're, they're reminded of the things they're wrestling with. They're reminded of the things they're walking through. I pray just as much as we pray for the Cotters, we would pray for our family too. That it is the gospel. It is the gospel that absolutely changes everything. And that we would put our hope in that, we pray. God, we are trusting you through these seasons like never before. You're the only one we can look to. You're the only one who's big enough. You're the only one who's powerful enough. You're the only one who's wise enough. You have a plan and you will carry it out. And we can trust you in that. And so move your church to be the hands and feet to carry the gospel everywhere we go that this amazing God of ours loves this world deeply, so deeply that he has made our problem his problem and he solved it. We love you. We worship you and we ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Lighthouse Community, check out our website at mylighthousecommunity.com or connect with us on Facebook. You're invited to join us live Sunday mornings at 909 or 1111. Thanks again for listening to the Lighthouse Community Podcast.